And welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Stephen Usry, and I'm happy to welcome Polly Stewart to the program today. Polly's writing has appeared in the New York Times and Poets and Writers, as well as other publications. As Mary Stewart Atwell, she published the novel Wild Girls in 2012. Today we'll be discussing her latest book entitled The Good Ones, which is published by Harper. Polly, what kind of place is Tyndall County, Virginia? Well, it's a very real place to me. Geographically, if it were real, it would be located on the western border of Virginia. I was picturing Bath and Highland counties, which are the highlands of the Blue Ridge Mountains. But it's remote, so there are places that sort of could be equivalent to that. But culturally, it's very limited. You know, in terms of the people who live there, they've all known each other for most of their lives. They have deep ties in the area. So I think there are small towns in the mountain south that are like this. They're beautiful, so they may attract tourists. They may attract people who want to retire there. But also a lot of the people who live there never have any incentive to leave as long as they can make a decent living. So my father's family is from part of Virginia that's much like that. I live within an hour of that area myself, and I I just love it. I think it's fascinating both in its cultural insularity and in its natural beauty. How would this area compare to, like, the national preconceptions of Appalachia? That's a great question. One thing I want to do with with my work is explore how those stereotypes operate and the limitations of them, because Appalachia is a huge area, if you think about the, the It goes all the way down the, to Alabama, yeah. Right, exactly, and up, up to Maine. So we can't really just equate it with a little corner of West Virginia that people think they know from the movies. So I grew up in Appalachia. My family goes back generations there. I grew up in a college town, so it wasn't exactly like what people picture. We do have friends who make moonshine. <laughs> I have a lot of friends who hunt. There is some some cultural specifics that people are familiar with, but it's, it's a much more diverse area, I think, than a lot of people realize. Well, nowadays, you can say your moonshine is artisanal. That's right. And class it up that way. There's a moonshine festival in Franklin County that's perfectly legal. (laughs) I hope there's no one going blind over there. (laughs) (laughs) Now, The Good Ones opens with a prologue with an act of vandalism that spirals out of control. Yes. So in the opening pages, we meet the two main characters, Nicola and Lauren. They're friends from childhood. At this point, Nicola has come back after her sophomore year of college. Lauren is newly married with a small daughter, and they decide to go tubing on the river. Anyone who knows, you know, this this part of the South, we have these lovely flat rivers that are great for kayaking and tubing. And when they get to the parking lot, they find that someone has parked so close to Lauren's BMW that it's very hard for her to pull out. She takes this as a personal insult and decides to key the truck which I've definitely known people who did that as a, as a sort of response to injury in the past. It's obviously damaging someone's property because they've made you mad is not a, not a great move, and it does lead to bad consequences. Because she's just not keying the truck. She is keying the truck. <laughs> she might as well be doing some art on it. Yes, she really goes for it. And part of what I was hoping that people would be thinking of in that scene is it makes a horrible sound, right? When you scream metal across metal. So it's really a malicious and nasty thing to do. Because it shows that Lauren is carrying a lot of anger with her. Yeah, that's, that's nicely put. You know, one thing I wanted to, to deal with in this book, there are some characters who 
fit into small town stereotypes, but I think also exceed them in some ways, complicate them in a lot of ways. So Lauren, I I hate the phrase mean girl, but that comes up sometimes when people talk about the book. I think she's much more than that because as you said, she she has a lot of anger. She has reasons for being angry and she doesn't really have anywhere to put those feelings. So like a lot of people do, she acts out. A lot of it's born from frustration. And if anyone has had the misfortune to be with someone who is charismatic, but also doesn't know what they want from their life, knows how much hell they can put you through in that process. That's a great insight. I think that's that's the thing. You know, a lot of us are drawn to people with big personalities. They're fun to be around. They're exciting. And Lauren is one of those people. She just really draws people to her. But you're absolutely right. If you combine that kind of personality with a lack of purpose or direction in your life, it can get misdirected in some harmful ways. So Lauren invites Nicola to come home with her. Her husband and young daughter are out of town visiting family. Nicola begs off and something terrible happens. Yes. So Nicola, um, Lauren asked her to come over to spend the night. She's not able to do that because she's told her mother she would be home, but they plan to meet the next morning. When she goes over, Lauren's not there. And she sees signs that something's wrong. There's a broken glass on the floor. There's a towel that seems to have some blood on it. She discounts those in ways that I think a lot of people would because you, you don't want to think you're living in a tragedy all of a sudden. But as she can't find any sign of Lauren, she she begins to really worry. Then when Lauren's husband comes home, they, they realize that something really is wrong. So then we're taking a decade and a half in the future, and Nicola has not stayed in town. She is now coming back, and she's got a huge burden to take care of. Yes. So Nicola moved away. I also moved away from Appalachia for my 20s and my, my early 30s. And then she, she does end up coming back because her mother has died. She needs to sell her mother's house. And she's very reluctant. When I moved back, I was very happy to come back to a part of the country I love. But she really feels a lot of resistance to it, partly because of what happened to Lauren. But when she gets back, she inevitably ends up seeing and spending time with a lot of people she knew in the past and just gets tangled up again in all the questions of, of what happened. She has lived her life in a way that many small-town people would not approve of. Yes. Um, Nicola's a queer woman. She's dated both women and men, and she is very uncomfortable with that aspect of her identity. She dated a woman in college who Lauren really disapproved of, mocked their relationship a good bit. And since then, she's just been really uncomfortable being herself. And that doesn't get any easier for her when she comes back to a town where she expects to be judged and expects to feel constricted in terms of the, the choices she can make. Because she didn't spend that night with Lauren back before her disappearance, she's carried a lot of guilt around because of that. And we learned that there are other things that she harbors guilt for over the years. And I was thinking about, do you think there's some narcissism tied up with these feelings of guilt that she's held on to over these years? Oh, absolutely. She's a very self-absorbed person in, in many ways. In a way, I think maybe people in their, in their 20s and early 30s tend to be But she really centers herself in the middle of this story. She thinks it's about her. And she's kind of convinced that something she did caused this tragedy to happen to Lauren. So when she goes back to investigate these aspects of the past, it's with the the view that she wants to kind of confirm her own guilt. But I think it's also her wanting to confirm that, that she is important to the story of what happened. 
Do you think this narcissism has come about because she's an only child, or are there other factors do you think that have encouraged this trait in her? Yeah, that's a good question. I think in in some ways, I had my first child in my early 30s, and I think I was quite self-absorbed until that. And and I know a lot of people without children who mature beautifully and and you know find a way to sort of not not see themselves as the center of things. But I think there are people out there who just sort of still think of themselves as the center of the world in the way that their parents thought of them when they were growing up, and it's hard for them to get past that. So I see a lot of my younger self in Nicola, but it really is, you know, to the point where some of the other characters in the book say to her, you have to stop thinking about these things that happened 20 years ago. You have to move on. And that's very hard for her to hear. Since she has left Tyndall County, she's earned her PhD, and she's got stuck on this track of one, two-year appointments as uh, adjunct faculty around the country. And so she has just been moving constantly all this time. Yes, which is something that happens to so many people in academia more and more. I also teach college. I was relatively lucky to find a, a job that I was very happy in and I just wanted to stay in. But Nicola hasn't had that level of success as yet. And it just, you know, as, as a lot of people know, it just gets harder and harder to find those long-term academic jobs. So she feels that she's been promised a future in a lot of ways that now she can't access. And she feels a lot of resentment about that. So beyond being a mother and seemingly (laughs) well-adjusted, there are similarities in your biography and Nicola's. Where do you think you're the most different? Well, you know, I did feel self-conscious, I guess, about not being a queer writer writing about a queer character. There are a lot of questions about how we can write about an identity that isn't our personal identity. I felt that if I illuminated her character as, as I saw it in a way that was honest, that you know, I, I wanted to be fair to her as a person. Also, I think her just her anger toward our hometown, I think is completely understandable. Like I said, you know, we, we shared that experience of homecoming to Appalachia, but I did it willingly and was happy to come back. She's not. So who did you mind for this negative orientation toward the hometown? Well, I think that was more of me as a teenager. Maybe I really wanted to leave uh, my small town when I was growing up. And it was when I had children when I got older, when I wanted to be closer to my own family. And also, I just realized how much I loved the landscape. I think for Nicola, because she associates it with Lauren's disappearance and with some other painful experiences from her past, she doesn't have that love for it. But the Blue Ridge Mountains, I just think, is one of the most beautiful places in the world. And and I just love living there. If you grow up around hills and mountains, flatland just is so weird. <laughs> It's really true. It's funny to hear that here in Memphis. And I, I love this city, but it is, I lived in the Midwest for a good part of my, my 20s and 30s. And it, that part was rough for me. Now, a person whose influence has been huge, but by absence, is Charlie Smalls. Yes. So Nicola's mother came to Tyndall County from West Virginia. She was pregnant at the time and had Nicola after she'd arrived. And she tells Nicola that her father was a truck driver named Charlie Smalls that her mother met in West Virginia and had a brief relationship with and has no idea how to get in touch with. And of course, Nicola, like most of us, decides to Google him and and look into and she just can't find any trace of him. And I think, you know, what I'm thinking of there is anyone who's been estranged from a parent or had a distance from a parent, there's that longing to reconnect with that person, to establish a relationship. 
even if I think she knows all along that's not going to be possible for her, but she can't really let go of that hope. Nicola and Lauren's mothers had been friends, and they were bonded by their outsider status. Yes. So Lauren's dad owned a plastics factory in Tyndall County. Nicola's mother worked for him for a period of time, and that's how she met Lauren's mother. Later, she started a house cleaning business and ended up cleaning their house and some of their neighbors. So it's a strange relationship. I think a lot of people would think they have these class differences and certainly differences in economic status. But as you said, you know, these these small towns in the South tend to be so insular. Um, Lauren's mother is from New Jersey. Nicola's mother is from West Virginia, and they're just never going to fit in. They're they're blunt, and they don't go along with Southern social niceties. And so they, they do form this bond that ends up being largely strained later. Because Nicola's mother is not a warm person. No, no, I don't think of either of them as, as warm people. She's not maternal at all. And one thing I wanted to do in this book was there are so many different ways to be a mother and to be a woman. And she very much loves her daughter and wants to protect her fiercely, but she doesn't show those qualities that we expect mothers and women to perform. I don't think that makes her a, a bad person or a bad mother, but it's, it takes some adjustment for her daughter. She was not named Nicola at birth. What led to her name change? Yes, so her name was Nicole, and Lauren renamed her Nicola because she thought it sounded classier and fancier. And for me, that was just sort of something that I changed my name for a while in high school, and I think it's something that young women will do just as a desire to try on a different personality. And for Nicola, it's very aspirational. She would rather be Nicola than Nicole, so she ends up taking on that role, even though it's not in some ways, her real self. Well, and you've changed your name recently as well. Yes, I I do publish under a different name than my legal name. That was a publishing world decision. But I also, my legal name is Mary, and my family's always called me Polly. So I'll I'll really answer to all kinds of things. (laughs) So Nicola has come back to town. She needs to dispose of her mother's estate. She has a house that she needs to fix up. And it's pretty fortunate that one of her friends is a real estate developer and and salesperson, and who can help her out. Yes. So Lauren's husband, whose name is Warren, they were originally matched up in in middle school because they had rhyming names, as, as middle schoolers would do. He is a real estate agent. His family owns this brokerage in Tyndall County. So of course, Nicola goes to him for help. She's also always been attracted to Warren. He was a successful athlete and kind of the cool guy in town in high school. So they reestablish this relationship. He's still single. And I don't want to give any spoilers, but of course, she probably should be more wary of him than she is, given some things she knows about him and also the fact that his wife disappeared under mysterious circumstances. But in in many ways, she's sort of dazzled by the fact that he's interested in her after she had this mental image of him as the, the cool guy back in high school. Well, and it is the default assumption whenever a woman goes missing that her husband or partner should be at the top of the, the suspect list. Yes, and for a good reason. You know, so, so sociologically speaking, there are good statistics behind that. But of course, you know, in a thriller, we want to consider all the possibilities. Warren is not always a nice person. So, you know, I hope that the reader will be a bit more wary of him than Nicola is. One of the reasons he may have skated the suspicion from law enforcement in the investigation into her disappearance is because he's from the Ballard family, and that means something in Tyndall County. 
Yes, it was really funny to me. I already drafted this book, and I, I think it had already been sold when I became familiar with the case of the Murdochs down in South Carolina that I know a lot of this have followed. And I thought, well, that's the Ballard family. That's exactly how I imagine them. The Murdochs, of course, there are some quite a few crimes that they've been associated with. But but I think it is a reality in these small southern towns that if you come from a moneyed family across generations that has a certain amount of status in the community, people are going to look the other way. You know, the police chief knows your dad. Everyone you meet has some kind of connection. So Warren has grown up not with bad intentions, but with the assumption that he could kind of do anything he wanted to do. So that can not necessarily be good for your character. I'm a nerd, and mm-hmm. so I, I like to look up name meanings in novels to see if there are any resonances going on there behind the scenes. And Nicola means people of victory, and Lauren means victory. So even in their names, they're intertwined. That is really interesting, and I wish I could claim that I already knew that. I did, I did not. The first name that came to me in this novel was Warren, because I thought it was such a great name for for that sort of guy. And then that means keeper of the land, by the way. Interesting. Well, that that works perfectly. And then Lauren, I think of as just sort of it's a regular girl's name. Everybody knows a lot of Lauren. So you could kind of illustrate that character in a, in a number of ways. And then Nicola had that change of her name from the more common form, Nicole, which I thought just worked perfectly. It was something she would do. Much like Warren, Lauren is the golden girl of her high school. But as time goes along, we learn that it's more gilded than 24 karat. Yes. Yeah. So Lauren has, again, been in this role. Her family's not local, doesn't go back generations the way that Warren does. But her her dad owned this very successful business. They had a lot of money. They lived in the right part of town. So she's set up to do well in this community. And she's very beautiful. She's very smart. And I think it's her intelligence that's kind of the problem because on some level, she probably knows that she should be doing something else or wanting something else, but she can't figure, as you pointed out, she can't figure out what that is. So the easy path, the path of least resistance for her is to marry Warren, to settle down in their town, to be what she's expected to be. That doesn't make her happy, but in her early 20s, she doesn't quite know what to do about it. Warren has a younger brother, Sean, and Sean is pretty much the opposite side of the coin from Warren. Yeah, and I think poor Sean, he has a lot of younger brother issues. He's not as good looking as Warren. He's not as athletic as Warren. So he's always kind of been secondary, including to their parents. He was the one that Nicola knew better in high school. They were very close. Their relationship ended badly. And then he ends up coming back to their hometown to take over as the principal of the high school, a job that he's very good at trades like Warren on some of the advantages of, of being a Ballard, but but seems to be doing a better job at actually contributing to his community and caring about people. Like all the characters in this novel, I don't think he's necessarily what he appears to be at first, but he seems to be the good brother. And given his troubled history as a teenager, it has made him more empathetic to kids with problems in school, and he's has a great rapport with them. Someone asked me the other day if I'd had experience teaching high school, which Nicola ends up doing in the book, and I've successfully avoided it. I think I've taught every other grade level except high school (laughs) because teenagers, as we all know, are so hard to deal with. But Sean is just really, as you said, he's really good with them. He really likes that population. And I think, you know, they're the best at sniffing out BS and they can tell when someone's being real with them and someone isn't. And he just has that gift. I did some substitute teaching when I got out of college, and I enjoyed the junior high kids 
seven through nine much more than I did the high school kids. I do too. Yeah, they're a little bit more adventurous. I think high school people, kids are kind of locked into whatever pose they've latched onto at that point. When Lauren goes missing because of this incident with the red truck when they were tubing, the owner of that red truck and his father become major suspects. What, what's going on with the Westcott family? So the Westcotts are a different, again, sort of a different social status than, than most of the characters in the book. The first character we meet is Dale Westcott, who owned the truck that Lauren keyed in the parking lot. And obviously, he's an immediate suspect when she goes missing, because this is not a provocation that a lot of people would let, let go unchallenged. But they also have a relationship, Nicola and Lauren, to his daughter, Jessie, who was Nicola's best friend from elementary school on. And there's also some past issues between her and Nicola that they think may have contributed to Dale Westcott being angry with Lauren. Because Nicola kind of left Jessie behind when she exited her ugly duckling phase and became pretty enough to go with the cool kids. Yes. So Jessie is, is just a different character in high school. People perceive her as weak. And of course, people like Lauren, who are always looking for someone to victimize, she was an easy target back then. She comes back in the book as an adult, and she's honestly the character I relate to most in the book. She just is completely willing to move on with her life and sort of accept the responsibilities of adulthood in a way that the other characters really struggle with. Lauren's case, she's a beautiful young white woman who disappears, and this white woman syndrome of the, the media is addressed in the book and how they tend to get more coverage than women of other races who go missing. But the case kind of goes cold because Dale Westcott dies shortly after all this happens. Yes, exactly. So it's a very easy answer for the police who, of course, don't want to investigate Warren and his family. So here is Dale Westcott. He had several reasons to be angry with Lauren. He has died in an incident that may have been an accidental drowning, may have been suicide. So case closed as far as they're concerned, although it's it's technically open. No one was ever charged, but they have no incentive to investigate the case at that point. And that's one of the things that that angers Nicola, because she does feel that Lauren's case deserved more attention. But prior to Lauren's disappearance, Nicola and her mother did bond over the true crime genre. Yes. So th there are um, some slightly autobiographical elements there. My mom, for many years, was a professor of criminal justice. So we talked about crime and sociological issues all the time at dinner time. <laughs> it was common household conversation. So there's a scene where Nicola and her mother are watching Dateline, and Nicola's mother turns to her and says, if anyone ever hurts you like that, I would want to flip the switch on them myself, which is a very uncomfortable moment for Nicola. And my mom said something to me that was sort of the, the inverse of that. She said, if you were ever killed, I wouldn't want the person to die because that wouldn't, that wouldn't do any good. You know, that wouldn't bring you back. But similarly, even though it was the opposite sentiment, it was such a strange moment to think like, oh, well, I guess you've been imagining my death. That's <laughs> weird. But, but I mean, being involved in teaching criminal justice, I guess you would be inclined to put yourself in the situation that you see other cases in, and how would one react to that? Well, and I think so many of us do that now in the true crime realm. I mean, that was one of the things that sort of started this book for me, is that I was listening to and consuming a lot of true crime, and I'd find myself imagining myself, you know, if this were the last day of my life, and someone was narrating, you know, me slicing tomatoes and walking my dog, and, and then I thought, what a strange 
kind of mental exercise. But I think for women especially, those shows are so enthralling, partly because it's so easy to put yourself in the position of the victim. And Nicola has kept up online and to see if there are any further developments and investigations, if there's been any amateur sleuthing going on. And it takes her to one of the most terrifying places on the planet, (laughs) Reddit. That part of the story actually developed with the help of my editor. I was not terribly familiar with Reddit before, but I dipped into it. It's a fascinating subculture. I was just listening to a true crime podcast where there was an interview with the prosecutor after the case that was covered was tried and someone was convicted. And he said that every day after he gave his arguments in court, he would go back to his hotel and check Reddit and see what people were saying, (laughs) and sometimes incorporate aspects of people's commentary into the direction of the case. So I think it's, it's impossible to overstate the influence that particularly the true crime Reddit subculture has had on the way these cases are covered and even investigated and tried. It's fascinating. Back to Jessie Westcott. Her father dies shortly after Lauren's disappearance, but it's obvious that she doesn't believe that he is guilty because she's named her son after him. Nicola takes that as sort of, of course, you don't want to admit that your dad is guilty, but I think Jesse has good reason. She feels that she knew him and he was not capable of something like this. And and Nicola takes, not offense, but thinks it's really strange that Jesse named her son after him because why would you want to draw attention to the fact that you're Dale Westcott's daughter. But for Jessie, as in many parts of her life, it's just an act of defiance. She's going to do what she wants to do, sort of regardless of what people think about it. They have to work together because Jessie works at the high school as well. Yeah, so she's become the guidance counselor, and that's one of the very strange moments for Nicola to find that these people she remembers as sort of lost and in the process of discovering themselves are now in these positions of authority. And they, Sean and Jesse, seem to act like adults most of the time when Nicola doesn't feel like an adult. But I said Jesse is the character who's kind of closest to me. She has a son on the autism spectrum. I do as well. She's ready to take on accountability toward her past and just kind of focus on her presence. So she and Nicola, they don't always have a meeting of the minds, I think, for that reason. But in Echoes of Nicola's Mother, she is very blunt as well. Yes, and I I just loved that about her character. She's the only one, for most of the books, she's the only one who ever calls Nicola out. And I I think I was, that was the writer (laughs) speaking through (laughs) the character a little bit um, because she just gets so sick of her, her focus on the past. In the book, you hint at the racial dynamics of the area, but it's not a major theme of the book. But I really appreciated that you at least acknowledge that in the story. Yeah, thank you. So um, Jessie is indigenous. Her mother was a member of the Eastern Band of Cherokee, which is, you know, I don't think everyone's familiar with this history, but when the Cherokees were forcibly relocated from the Appalachians, there is a group that remained and still present in those communities today. There are also, you know, there's significant black population in Appalachia. It's, It's much more racially diverse, I think, than people realize. I think I would feel some hesitation to tell a story like that from the inside because it's not my experience, but I don't think we should be writing about the South or even about the mountain South without acknowledging that there are racial differences and racial dynamics at work in those communities. Well, and one of the greatest American mysteries is in the Appalachians is the Melungeon people. Yes, yeah. So the Melungeons are fascinating. I'm sure a lot of your listeners know, but this population that really there's no genetic 
confirmation of where they came from. I think the prevailing theory is that they're the result of intermarriage among white settlers, black settlers, and possibly indigenous settlers. But they remained as a very isolated population in these pockets of Appalachia for hundreds of years, so really came to have a, a unique identity. The writer Chris Offit has a book called Kentucky Straight that has some great stories about, about the Melungeons, but I think it's a, it's a fascinating story. A minor character in the story is thinking of going to Citadel. Why didn't you choose VMI? <laughs> as, as you know, I teach at Virginia Military Institute. There are a lot of jokes. There's a lot of rivalry between VMI and the Citadel. So the joke is, what do a VMI and a Citadel cadet have in common? They both applied to VMI. <laughs> <laughs> so that's kind of the stereotype I was working at, that I didn't think he was quite good enough for VMI. You must have started drafting this a few years ago because the price Warren thinks he can get for Nicola's mother's house is comically low. <laughs> Even in a remote area, it seems like a, a house would go for much more than that nowadays. You would think. I actually checked that one with my husband who sold real estate for a while, and he said, you'd be surprised in these isolated small towns. I mean, you can pick up an ugly house for pennies. So he... I know, but she remodeled it, and it's still not even hitting 200000 <laughs> Yes, that's true. Well, she wants to sell and go, so I think she's what they call a motivated seller. Nicola had some feelings because... Uh, Warren was the big man on campus in high school, and they develop a relationship. Yeah, I was just telling some readers the other night, the good parts of Warren in, in some ways are modeled on my husband. He's <laughs> not the bad parts, but we didn't know each other in high school, but he was an athlete and very popular. I was a big nerd. So I had this experience when we got together of feeling, you know, like, in the teen movies where somehow the, the popular guy sort of picks out not popular girl. And then I thought, how ridiculous this is that I'm, I'm a fully grown adult. I'm in my 30s and I still feel this attraction to those kind of high school stereotypes. So I was very embarrassed by that. But I also thought it was an interesting thing that we can get locked into these roles. You know, he still lives in the area that he grew up in and kind of benefits some some ways from that reputation he had. So I think it's it's a real thing for a lot of people. And as long as you don't abuse it, I'm not sure it's it's a bad thing. There is some sauciness. There's some R-rated material in the book <laughs> and some very blunt discussions of certain topics. Are you worried that your cadets who are in your classes might read your book? <laughs> <laughs> I just got a text from one this morning and I thought, should I warn him? <laughs> I don't know. You know, I think... I'm not the only person in my department who publishes fiction, and our students are adults, so hopefully they will understand that adult fiction is going to deal with some adult topics, but if they don't read it, that's, that's okay with me, too. So, have you started working on a, another novel? I have. It's set in the same area. It's called The Felon's Ball, and it's about a woman who owns a yoga studio in a small town. Her family's from there, and her family has some criminal associations in the past. So she is hoping to run her small business and be successful, but she gets kind of uh, pulled into some of their shenanigans. So same sort of area and some of the same ideas as the good ones. And I'm, I'm having just a ton of fun working on it. Now, I don't know if in your part of the South, but in some parts of our South, yoga can be viewed as satanic. Are there any of those concerns in the story? Absolutely. That's something she deals with early on and something I've been practicing and teaching yoga for a long time and that I've certainly heard. And yoga is a secular activity, but in the small town, she definitely has to deal with that. Well, Polly, I want to thank you so much for stopping by and speaking with us on Book Talk today. It's been a pleasure and I really enjoyed the good ones. Thank you so much. It's been uh, wonderful being with you.
Polly Stewart is the author of the novel, The Good Ones, which is published by Harper. I'm Stephen Usry, and this is Book Talk. Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is produced in the studios of FM 89.3 WYPL Memphis, a service of the Memphis Public Library, a division of the City of Memphis. Book Talk is copyrighted by the Memphis Public Library, all rights reserved.